Tony Gooch, part two. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> part one's only been up months. It's like, what, 300k? It's is getting it? there. It's getting there. It's going straight up. It just won't stop. <laughs> I'm glad people are liking it. <sighs> yeah, it really resonated. The amount of text messages and inboxes I've had really? um, from all over the world. I've really? had um, a massive influx from Australia for some yeah. reason. Um, of Australian people viewing it, saying, oh, we love the podcast, when you're doing the next one. And I was yeah. like, it's coming, it's coming. So what, like, have you had any offers or anything off the back of it? Yeah, well, I've done a few more podcasts. I don't like saying I've, I've done a, one called Chew the Bit. Um, yeah. Brilliant podcast, uh, mm-hmm. Sam Souls. Lovely, lovely fella. Yeah. Um, it, I can see it taking off. He's, mm-hmm. he's doing really well, but what a lovely chap. Yeah. Really nice fella. Uh, looked after me when I was down there. Um, have you had I, some media work as well? Yeah, well, I've done bits and bobs. Um, I'm trying to get this uh, this thing going with Jamie Button uh, with the documentary series, mm. but because of the COVID, it's just it's just killed yeah, everything. I mean, he's, I spoke to him the other day, and he's sick to his back teeth because he's been working from home, mm. and he's like he's getting bored out of his brain now. Yeah, yeah. But I know he was doing a um, a documentary. I can't remember his name now. The uh, the news reporter. The Asian geezer, I can't I used to do Channel Four News. Yeah, um, he's been doing a documentary with him, um, and even the the it's been interrupted the the filming for that because of the COVID situation. I know someone on his set went down with it and it got stopped. And all the talks in schools are getting cancelled. Yes, it's, um, I don't understand it. I can't get my head around it. I just don't yeah. see the logic in why they're they're shutting everything else down yeah. and they're letting the kids go to school because you know what's going to happen. The kids are going to get infected and bring it all back to the households. Right, let's get off the subject because it's a, it's a, um, yeah. people's channels are getting deleted. Yeah. So, we've got 20 new stories Woo-hoo. from Tony. And if you haven't seen Podcast One, it's at the top of the description box below this video, as are the links to everything else Tony is doing online. So, please go down and support his work. So, the first story then is the first police Slap. The yeah. first police slap. How old are you? I was about 14. Yeah. 14. Uh, PC Wakefield, his name was. Um, do you know what? It's actually comical because even though I ended up having a bit of a ruckus with him, later on, um, he actually turned out to be quite a decent fella. Yeah. Um, trying to set you straight. He was. And um, you don't get that nowadays Mm-mm. because with all the cameras and you, you can't really get beat up by the police anymore unless it's in the cell or something and away from uh, prying eyes. But yeah, I... Um, I got caught with uh, my mates trying to steal a motorbike on an industrial estate. Uh, I got arrested walking up the road. Um, like you do at 14, you think, oh, I'm just walking down the road, mind my own business, ain't going to pull me. But it was three o'clock in the morning, I had a set of gloves on, so they pulled me over. Um, and yeah, I got, a, I got a bit of an hiding in the back of the car by the two of them. Um, but the the way I am, I could have gone in there and gone, he's hit me, he's beat me up, but I didn't say anything. You, you know the rules of the game. Um, and at that point, uh, you, you're talking like mid-90s, I suppose then, late 90s. Um, that that sort of thing used to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can see, looking back, the reasons. Um, he could obviously see the way I was going and it, it was a way of trying to sort me out, but it didn't yeah. work. But um, but yeah, that was my uh, my first police slap, um, and it's, it's always stuck in my mind. It really because it's a shock to the system. Yeah, when you get hit by someone that's not your mum and dad, or not some one of your mates in the street that you're having a bit of a tear up with, and it's an authority figure. Yeah, um, it comes as a bit of a shock, and you're like, hold on, he fucking hit me. Eh? Um, but I could see the message he was trying to get across. But he, he turned out to be a nice fella in the end. To be really? fair, he did. Yeah. It's like your prison when the vi- the violence on the inmates to inmate is expected, but then when you see the guards like brutalize someone, you're like, oh, oh fuck. They, oh, they yeah. give you some ideas. But their, their way around the beating you up in prison is when you get bent up, mm. that's when they get you. They're, yeah. they're, they're restraining you, 
but really they're giving you rib shots and they're very they're very selective on where they hit you. They're not yeah. gonna break your nose, mm-hmm. but they'll um, they'll beat your body up and they'll stand on your legs and the back of your ankles and it's it's not a pleasant experience when you're lying down flat, it, it hurts a lot. Didn't we tell some of those stories in the last one? Yeah, we did, yeah. yeah. Um yeah. I, I've had a few of them in um in prison. None yeah. none too over the top. <laughs> um I'll give as good as I got, but yeah, that that's when it happens when you get bent up. So what's the game plan to give as good as you're going to get in a situation like that? Well, it's, it depends on the type of individual that you are. Mm. I mean, if, um, if you're laid back and you've been caught in a situation where you've just had to defend yourself, but you're not really a fighter, yeah. and you get restrained, you're not really putting up a lot of resistance. Mm. So you're not tending to fight back. Uh, but with me, my, my rule's always been, if you lay hands on me, I'm yeah. laying hands on you. Yeah. Um, and you're obviously outnumbered in, in, in prison. You're sometimes 15, 20 to 1. Mm. So it's kind of, you hit the ones closest to you, mm. um, and that's your kind of win. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because after that, you're bent up. You're not doing nothing. Yeah. All right, so next story is Detonator Discovery. This was um, this was a period, and this is going, I was still at school. Um, so there was these things on trains. Um, mm. I don't know if they still have them now as it goes, but in the cab of the trains where the driver sits at either end. Distress things, were they? They're like little yellow things. Are. I remember these. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've got yeah, little like yeah. clay straps on them. Yeah. Um, and I believe they're fog signals. Okay. So what they do is they strap them to the railway track and when the train goes over them, they give a little pop. Yeah. But the weight of the train kind of disguises the, the explosion. Mm. Uh, but we uh, we came to realise that if you lifted up a manhole cover in the street <laughs> and you and you strapped it to the corner at an angle and then yeah. kicked it down, <laughs> it'd hit it. And when they go off, my, it's like an IRA bomb's gone off. They are so loud but um, we had a lot a lot of fun with them a lot yeah. a lot of fun but um i remember the police came round to our school at bishop wand um and they said well a kid's got hold of these and he's blown his arm off what? with one of them yeah um he actually hit it with a hammer oh. to try and detonate and he blew up to his elbow off and they was like you've got to stop stealing these things but of course when these fucking oh. sell great so uh yeah that went on for a good long while but we had a lot a lot of fun with him a lot of fun you had to stay at a safe distance <laughs> yeah. heroin at a young age yeah that was um i would say that was my first bad experience with heroin mm. um hate the drug i hate what it represents how I, young were you i i was oh, i would have been about 17 then mm. so maybe 16 17 um and my friend was one of my Best pals. We was inseparable from, I'll say, the age of 11, 12 upwards. Mm. And it was always kept very secret. So even though we had our group, he sort of walked off in with another group. So when he wasn't with us, he was with them. Yeah, yeah. And unbeknown to us, they was doing heroin. Okay. And it, it got rumours started spreading. And a couple of times I said to him, what are you doing this heroin? And he's like, no, as if I'd do that. And mm. the geese didn't even smoke, didn't drink, didn't do anything. Um, and at that point, I go back to what I said in the first podcast, your friends are like your family. So mm. when something like that happens, you want to do everything you can to get them away from it. Yeah, and um, basically, I ended up going to his partner's house once it, it, it was certified that he was on it. Um, and I didn't know, but the girlfriend was on it yeah. as well, which yeah. I didn't have a clue about. So I ended up going to the house and we sort of kidnapped him out of the house. And uh, we took him away and he went to a, a farm in Brighton. Um, with another friend of mine that trains horses and I, I left him 100 quid and I said you stay here till you're clean I said and after this if you get back on it you're on your own I said because I'm not I'm not going to waste my time with someone that I'm going to keep helping them doing the same thing so um, we went there he got clean but unfortunately he ended up going back to it um, 
in the in the near future, uh, and I sort of cut ties with him. But I believe he's doing quite well now. I know he's off of it now, uh, but the damage was already done. In that respect, so I, I lost the trust because I can't. I didn't want to be associated with people doing that. So I've taxed my brain about this problem because in Arizona, about ninety percent of the prisoners were injecting heroin. Um, I heard the sad stories of abuse. Or one guy was my cellmate. He came in, and he'd been in, had a family and everything. Got in a motor accident. Got on painkillers. Fucking just cycled all the way into heroin when he got cut off the painkillers and lost everything. Yeah. So do you think then? that what you did just like postponed the inevitable these guys have got to hit rock bottom and sometimes that rock bottom includes death it's, that, that is the problem and the, to, it goes by the old saying you can take a horse to water but you can't make it drink it and for me addiction it has to be within the individual to want to stop yeah. I mean everyone around that individual can have all the goodwill in the world to get them to stop mm. but if they're not ready and they're not at that point mm. is what you're doing is just pointless because they'll always sneak off they'll find ways of doing it that's what addicts do um, and it's a shame because like you say sometimes it gets to the point where they end up dying yeah. um, there, was a, there was a geezer uh, called Billy uh, Billy Wicks uh, from Sunbury and it, he was a lovely fella um, he was a bit of a ruffian but he was the same. He ended up dying of an overdose on a bench somewhere. And you're like, that's no way to go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not from that. And this is what annoys me now about the people that are dealing these hardcore drugs. Mm -hmm. There's no emphasis on the damage that they're doing. I mean, I've seen both sides of it. So I can yeah. see that from a dealer's perspective. If you don't give it to them, someone else is going to. I understand that. Mm -hmm. So why not them profit from it? Because if they don't, someone else will. But it's the damage that it causes in the families. People are losing their kids and you end up divorced. You end up on your own, living on the street. Yeah. It's just a no-brainer. And it's like, why would you get involved in something that would do that to your life? It's not like um, like going to a party and saying, oh, let's do a pill and have a good time. Well, well, at what point do you do heroin and have a good time? <sighs> like To me, there ain't, there ain't no good side to it. So why would you do it? But everyone has their reasons. It just makes you throw up and scratch your ass all day. Yeah, it does. So... You said it like the people who are trying to like insulate them from their demons, the interaction is pointless. Would you go one step further than that and say that people sometimes enable the behavior? By well, tr they're trying to help them and save them, but they're actually enabling the behavior. You have to understand that addicts are the best liars in the world. They will say and do anything to get their next fix. Yeah. And it's very easy for you to be helping someone and for that person to turn around and go, right, I'm clean. Oh, but I'm having a bit of trouble paying me phone bill. Can you lend me a score? And really, they're going out and getting another bit of gear. So it, it is difficult, but I, I firmly believe that it's the individual needs to be taken away from the circumstances they're in. And normally that is the group of people they're in. And I've said this from day dot. If you hang around with 20 people that steal cars, you will end up stealing cars. If you hang around with 20 people doing heroin, you will end up doing heroin. And that's exactly what happened to him. Yeah. Because in our group, that, that, that it didn't happen. No, no one went near it. But he ended up in a group of people that was, and he ended up on it. So to parents watching this then, who are concerned about the teenagers, yeah. there's some warning signs. What advice would you give them? The same things that I do with my son, um, and it's paying very, very close attention mm. to the people your kids are associating with. It's, and I, as a parent, I understand how easy it is 
for your son or your daughter to come in after school and go, am I allowed to go out and go and see that my mates up the shops? And mm. that's where it begins. That's where it starts. Someone somewhere along their lifeline will end up addicted to drugs. Someone will end up being murdered. Someone will end up being addicted to gear. Someone will end up getting lifed off in prison. That's just that's just a way of life. So for me, it's concentrating on who your kids are associating with. If you're not doing that and you take your eye off the ball, before you know it, they're on something and you can't get them off of it. And then the knock-on effect of that is is the rift that it causes because when you get someone that's young and they first get addicted to a hardcore drug like heroin, it begins to be like um, like a resentment in some ways. It's like your mum and dad are trying to give you advice and it's like, fuck you, I'll do what I want. I'm not listening to you. I'm going to go with my real family, which are the people that are giving them the drugs. And th- this is what you have to be very careful of. So for me, hanging around on street corners, hanging around in parks... It's a no-no. If you're going over there to play football in the daytime, that's one thing. If you're going over there and drinking a bottle of vodka and having a merry time on a Friday night, that's where it all begins. And you have to pay very close attention to who your kids are associating with. So you think from what you just said then, there's a way, if the parents put too much stress on the kid to stop, the kid will then say, right, because of all this stress now, I need to do more drugs to make the stress go away. It is, and it's, um, it's a difficult one because if you look at, history if you look at people even people like mike tyson mike tyson had a very troubled childhood but then he met customato and customato was very strict and he made him focus on what he believed could push him through in life which was boxing now i know people um my mate ginger um he's got a son little louis mcdowney absolutely brilliant boxer and because ginger's kept on at him and kept on at him to go to training. This is what's important. He's now focused on that. So trying to get him to go and hang around on a street corner, it's like, oh, I'm going to do that for. I'd rather be in the gym training. Mm -hmm. But it's very easy to start forcing your kid in a direction that you believe they should go, but they're not really interested in. And that in itself can push them away from you. Mm. So it's trying to, it could be music, it could be playing an instrument, it could be acting, it could be modelling. But whatever it is, it needs to be a a two-way thing. You don't want to push them too hard, but you want to keep them interested so that they're locked onto it. And it is difficult. It really Mm. is. Because you know what kids are like. They go from liking football one minute to liking rugby to liking playing darts. It's, It's difficult, but... For me, it's trying to find something for kids to focus on from an early age. That's really good advice, people watching this. Um, Really appreciate that, Tony. All right, untimely death, Adam Marshall. Adam Marshall, what can I say about the boy? Um, I knew him from a very young age. I was slightly older. Um, Lovely mum. I had an older brother that was involved in drum and bass. Uh, Before I started emceeing and performing, he was one of the people that we used to go. He had like a three-tier house by the river in Sunbury. And underneath was like a garage, but it was a big old garage. And we used to go in there and he had his decks in there and all the rest of it. And that was when I first really started to love drum and bass. Um, And he was always a character. You know, like you get these characters, he was always up for a laugh. Wherever you went, he was there. He was part of the clique. And when you talk about addiction and what drugs can do to you we all know that drugs can make you depressed they can put you in a really good place but they can also put you in a very bad place and with him he had a a dad i can't remember if it was cerebral palsy or um or parkinson's but his dad his dad died um, when he was very young and i I believe it had a a very bad effect on him Mm. and i believe in in my eyes I, i believe that he reached a point in his life where he just couldn't see how life was going to progress for him, how it was going to get better. And he was kind of stuck in that depressive state. 
and he came to my mum's house, I believe it was the day before or two days before, and I was out the front cutting the bushes or something for me, me mum, and he sort of walked up the drive and he came in and said hello to my mum, and he was completely normal. Mm. Um, everything was fine. There was no indications to me that something like that was going to happen. Um, and then I got a call a couple of days later that he had um, he had jumped off the top of the Bentall Centre car park in Kingston. Um, what a way to go, man. He had, he, and it was. I mean, there was a bit of... Um, I know he owed a few people money, yeah. but not to the extent where you're going to be murdered over it or anything like that. Um, but the, what done it for me was that I found out later on that it's a, a big statistic that people who commit suicide that jump, they take their shoes and socks off. And the reason they do this is so that they can stand on the edge and curl their toes over the end. And I never knew that. But apparently it is, it is quite a common thing. So after he had jumped, they found his shoes and his socks at the top of the car park. So, And the purpose of curling the toes over the end is what? It's to balance yourself. So you can so go you've head got, first or something? Yeah, well, it's not that. It's so Because when you're in trainers and you're on yeah. your ledge, you, you, have, you can't grab hold of anything because you can't use your hands. Yeah. So it's a common thing for them to take their shoes and socks off so that they can curl their toes over the edge. And it, I didn't have a clue about it, but apparently it's, it's quite a common thing. But the, I mean, it was distressing enough that he died, but what was more distressing for me was what was going through his head before he jumped. And I've been at great heights and looked down and thought... I've been up to that car park where what, he'd done it. And what it's, must it's go through their heads to do that to and themselves? It's, you've got to be in such a bad place yeah. to want to do that. And his poor mum, I know his poor mum, I don't think she ever really got over it. Um, we went to the funeral and I mean we walked behind his coffin um, the whole way from uh, the church to the, the, the funeral um, park and it was it was horrible and it, 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 I didn't think at the time that it affected me in a great deal because at that age I sort of have that mentality of I'll just get on with things mm. even, even bad things happen you tend to get on with him but it wasn't until later on in my life in my late 20s that I realised how much it affected me mm. because it, it, even to this day, I think back and I remember good times with him. And I mean, the the, the the funny things we used to do. I remember one day he woke up and um he had cornflakes and we'd all been on one. And I looked at his cornflakes and there's loads of pills on top of it. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing? He went, I'm having pills and cornflakes. Like it was absolutely normal. I was like, all right. So everyone's sitting in his living room on these pills. And there was a few of us there. And I don't know if you've seen them, you know, the kitchen scissors with the nutcrackers on. Mm. So he fell asleep in the chair and me being the practical joker that I was I thought I know what I'll do I'll cut the beak of his baseball cap off and I'll cut his eyelashes <laughs> but as I've gone to cut his eyelashes I've cut this bit of his eye oh, so now I can see his eyeball through here and he's obviously woke up and I've got you caught your eye on the zip on the pillow and he's like what how'd I do that and he's walking around and he's blinking and you can see his eyeball but it, it was these funny stories that I remember mm. and that's how I like to remember him well alright so Finger on the fence. Finger on the fence. Now this was a this was a a day that you know, I won't forget in a hurry. So there's a girl called Natalie Franks. Hi to Natalie and all the family if you're watching. Um, we decided that we was going to go to Chesterton World of Adventures. So we must have been about maybe eighteen, nineteen, and round the back where there used to be a ride called Ramesses Revenge. 
And round the back of that, if you walk through the fields, you could climb up a tree and the branch went across the fence. So you could go up the tree, along the branch, drop down and you're, you're in without paying. Yeah. And there must have been about <laughs> 10 of us or so. And um, I don't know if you know that, you know, you get these really thin fences with the spikes mm. that split on the top. Mm. So I've climbed up this tree and I'm waiting for her and I've, I've helped her up to the branch. I've walked across and I'm just about to jump and she's fallen off of the tree, but the, the other side of the fence back into Ooh. the field. So my perspective is I'm on the branch looking down at her and all I can see is her bent over with her hand. And I was like, you all right? And she went, no. And her whole middle finger are gone. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I've turned around and the fence, her finger is sat on top of the fence twitching. Twitching? And what had happened was where she used to wear rings, where she had fallen, it's a natural reaction to grab to stop yourself from falling. Yeah. So the spike went up her ring, twisted it, and just left her finger on top of the fence. Now, Now, me not being a screamish person, all I had in my head is we've got to get this put back on. Yeah. So I couldn't... We're we're about a mile, I'd say, because you've gone right the way around the fields. So I thought, I can't take her and then come back for the finger. So I pulled the finger off and put it in my baseball cap and we run around with her on my shoulder and there was this police car sat in the car park and these two police officers were sat eating their lunch and I threw her onto the bonnet and this gavel went, what the fuck are you doing? As he's gone, like, I went with the finger and he's like, oh. So they rung an ambulance. The ambulance has come. We've all got in the back and they put this, this finger in like a bag of ice, I suppose, to maintain it. Yeah. Now in my head, she's crying and she's in pain. By this time, they've given her some sort of uh, painkiller and in my head, I'm thinking, I've just got to keep her upbeat, keep her spirits things. So we're driving in the ambulance, and I've got a finger in the corner of the bag. And I was like, you're picking my nose, Natalie, like, <laughs> with, the the, with the end of the finger. And then we got to the hospital. She went to a uh, Tootin hospital, and I'm sitting with her in the bed. And um, she, <laughs> I'm talking to her, she's like, what's going to happen? I said, they'll just sew it back on. And we sat there for a few hours, and obviously they've had to ring her mum and dad. Yeah. Now, the mum and dad have turned up, and I said, look, I'll go outside and I'll, I'll talk to them. Now, they didn't say on the phone what had happened. They just said, your daughter's been rushed into hospital. You need to come down. So I've gone outside, and her dad is looking at me. You know when you're a kid, it's like it's a dad. Like, you're scared of people's dads at that age. Yeah. And he was like, what's, what's happened to Natalie? And I was like, it's, it's, not, it's not that bad. And he was like, what, what, she's, she's hit her head? And her fingers come off. <laughs> She was like, what do you mean? Her fingers come off. I said, it's come off. I said, it, is, it was on top of the fence. She fell down and she grabbed the fence. It's come off. She was like, what? So I was like, oh, bro, I'll take you in. So we've gone back in and I'm sat in there. And at, the, at the moment, I'm thinking, look, it's bad. But as long as they put it back on, it's not that bad. Yeah. And then the doctor come in and they said, it's too badly damaged. We can't put it back on. I said, right, I'm going to shoot. I'll, I'll give you a ring in the week sort of thing. And then I've made a comic about her being a Simpson from now on because she's only got the four fingers. But no, it didn't go down too well. But um, I mean, I haven't spoke to her for a few years now, but she was a lovely girl, lovely girl. But yeah, to this day, she's she's got a, got a finger missing. <laughs> Bloody hell. Did she keep the finger? Did she get to keep the finger? No, nah, I mean, I tried to keep it, but I wouldn't let any of it either. <laughs> Police chicken chasing. That was a funny one. Um, so I don't know if people remember, used to get a moped called a chicken chaser. Yeah. So it was like an old pizza bike, but it had gears. Mm. And we was down an alleyway in Shepparton called Black Ditch Alley. And by this time, I am renowned for motorbike theft mm. at that stage in my life. And I come flying over the footpath... And there's two police officers in front of me. And obviously where we'd hot-wired the bike, once you started it, the only way to turn it off was to stall it. So I pulled up to these two policemen because he's either run them over or stop. And they're like, what's happening, Gooch? And I'm like, oh, just, you know, just drive me my piss. Oh, where are the keys? And I was like, I lost them. 
And they're like, all right, he said, turn it off. I said, I can't turn it off. I said, I've got to stall it. And he's like, all right, stall it. And he's moved out the way. I've put it in first gear and I've gone. <laughs> so they've chased me on foot. And the next thing I know, I've got a helicopter out. They're chasing me through all these back alleys and roads. And I got to this, um, there's like an old pit. It's like a sailing club. And I've got down this alley and I was basically boxed in. They come from all, all angles and I was boxed in. So I've dumped the bike and jumped over a fence and I've basically got to the corner of the lake. And when I turn around, this police officer, one of the original ones that was on the bridge that stopped me, he went, if you even fucking think about jumping in that lake, I was like, bollocks, I've jumped in the lake and started swimming. <laughs> so now I've got these two police officers, they've taken off all their belts and they jumped in behind me. Oh. And there was like a, um, like a tiny little island, you know, Canadian geese. Mm. they used to flock to this little island and lay their eggs so I've kind of got onto this island I'm surrounded by all these fucking eggs and Canadian geese and the, the way I went they, they obviously started to swim out and then they give up and went back to the shore mm. they went round to the sailing club and they got one of their little speedboats and they're circling me on the island but I'm under the undergrowth and they can't see me the helicopter's going I'm like what am I going to do so I sort of slid back into the water and as soon as my head popped up, they was there. And they actually had a police dog on the fucking boat. <laughs> I was like, I've got fucking no hope. So, um, yeah, I got arrested. I got taken away for that one as well. Holy <laughs> shit. Cine Maxed. That was uh, uh, back in the days when, I suppose it's similar, well, not as to the extent of the postcode wars now because they're all fucking killing each other. But back then you had people from different areas would fight. So with people from Sunbury, you would fight with boys from Feltham and then you'd fight with people from Hampton or Kingston. And uh, I can't remember what started it off, but something happened. And uh, they was like, right, we'll meet you at Feltham. We're going to have a, a big tear up in the car park. And I think, you know, sort of back in them days, a lot of people said a lot of things and it was like they wouldn't believe you would actually turn up. Yeah. So we've loaded up three transits full of us, all tall to the teeth, and we pulled in the car park and it's just gone off. And we had this um, we had this little geezer with us. It was a bit of a loose wire. And uh, when we've got out, I'm hitting people with golf clubs and there's people with machetes and all these, everyone's fighting. And it all come to an abrupt end and we've all got back in the vans. And when we pulled off, everyone was like, where's Sam? And we're like, we're ringing the other motors. And he's like, he's not in the car. So what he had done was, because he can't fight, he run to one of the cars that four the, the boys were in. He jumped in the car when they weren't in it to steal the car. But by this point, we had left and they've all now got back in the car and they've now got hold of him. So we've now had to go back, get out the car, we've had to put all the windows through in the car to get him out and rescue him and bring him back. <sighs> and it ended like, it is a nightmare. Then we, it, it, they come over to Sunbury and we had another big tear up in a car park. Then I believe they went around to someone's house. They put a flamethrower through my mate's letterbox <sighs> and tried torching the house and the windows got put through. It is absolute carnage. But um, but that was a regular occurrence back then because it there weren't nothing else to do. Do you know what I mean? So when you're in the mix like that, Braveheart style, you've got your golf club and you're twatting people. Well, the golf club was useless because I hit the geezer over the head of it and it fucking snapped and all I was left for <laughs> was the rubber handle. So I couldn't even do anything. Did you uh, sustain injuries from these battles? Yeah, but not... I mean, like I say now, guys, kids are fucking killing each other. Like yeah. back then, you might get a whack over the edge, you might get a few stitches, broken arm, mm. but you weren't really at risk of dying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Back then, if someone pulled a machete, it was more to scare you. No one's going to try and hack your head off or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it was it was disproportionate to what you was there for. And this is what I don't get now. And I spoke about this with Sam Souls. Got, we got kids killing kids because of the postcode they live in. But I don't see what the end game is. I, I understand that you've got a rivalry. Fair enough, go over the park, have a punch up, and then all go home to your families. But what I don't get, there, there's five, 10, 15,000 people in each postcode. What do you do? Kill all of them. 
According to the ex-cops we've interviewed, it's mostly over drug profits. It is. It's, it's, it's people shot in Again, other people's law, turfs. Law, 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 law. Drug wars need to be reversed to prevent this shit because it just gets crazy every year. Yeah, and I've said this from the start. I, I'm, I'm sick to death of the government turning around and saying drugs are bad, we're not going to legalise them. But when they're going to fucking wake up and realise everyone does them anyway. And, but, and, and it's just causing all this violence? And, it's it's a legal I mean? market? They go as far as they, they release the proceeds of Crime Act, so they're taking away all the profit from drug dealers. Now, for me, it's a bit hypocritical because even though when you catch a drug dealer and you never catch them when they first start, it's, it's years down the line once they've accumulated their wealth, you're taking all the wealth away, but all the other drug dealers that you're not onto, all they're doing is funding more crime. And this is what causes the violence. The more drugs that are on the street, the more drugs that can be given out for other people to sell. And this is where the younger kids get involved. This is where the rivalries start. Now, for me, if you legalise every single drug and then you turn around and say, right, you have to go to the chemist. You have to go to the chemist to get your Coke, to get whatever you want, but it's done in certain amounts. You can only have certain amounts, blah, blah, blah. You then take that power away from those people. And then all you have to do is say, right, if you're caught buying someone off gear or someone in the park, minimum 15 years. How many people are going to go to a dealer and buy gear then and not go to the chemist to buy it? Yeah, exactly. And then they're getting all the tax money off of it. Do you know? Exactly. So I just don't understand it. I really don't. We've got a lot of cops watch this show now. And there's some good cops out there who joined up not to be throwing kids in jails for fucking weed yeah. and all that petty shit. To go after the pedos and the murderers and the robbers and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But... um. It's it's what you're saying. Your testimony shows the other side that it's that profits that never ends and gets bigger every year that causes all this violence, and that was created by drug laws. Yeah. So to do what you said, if you have the government in control of it, all that money that the cartels are making. We had another guest on who said it was going to terrorism. Yeah. Um, he was in prison with the terrorists who were getting money off drugs. All that violence, knife crime in London. Hundreds of thousands of people dead in Mexico. This is all because of drug laws. The government has made this problem. So it's up to the good cops who are watching this, who joined for the right reasons, yeah. to listen to testimonies like yours and to be like, we've got to put this into practice somehow. Because you guys as well are risking your lives going out, raiding crack houses, raiding meth heads, whatever it is. How many cops die every single year? on these bullshit raids and that crack house gets shut down and guess what? Reopen somewhere else. R right away like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're not... You're Waste not, of fucking life. You have to cut the, the, the head off of the snake. Yeah. It, it's, it's the only way you kill it. I mean, for me, the... the the less lethal drugs like cannabis and path can like cannabis resin should be all legal completely they're, legal. They're, they're, they're not a massive problem in themselves but mm. the problem is is that people grow it and then sell it and then for whatever reason they get they get raided they lose the gear now they owe the money that's where the violence comes in yeah. now if you legalise it you take that violence away but I know the government's attitude would then be if we was to sell drugs in these certified places people would then target these places to rob just like people are doing with cash points at the moment so I understand that side of it but there has to be some way that you can take the power away from the people that are earning the money which in turn would then reduce the violence and I mean my offer still stands I mean I've tried to get in contact with my local MP to put my input in and it just seems like no one's really interested and it's, it's a major problem in this country and it, for me everything filters downwards and, and I've, I've brought all of this up with the, um, with the thing that you're covering with uh, Prince Andrew and for me 
that one topic in itself, it takes away the power that the monarchy have in this country to deter people from committing crime. And I'll give you an example. So for me, the Queen is like the perfect mother figure. She's like the ultimate mother. Now, I've heard on countless occasions where even though mothers and fathers, they love their kids, if their kid comes through the door and says, look, I've just murdered someone, they will shop their own kid. Now, whether you, that's the right thing to do or not, they've taken a life. And for me, something needs to be done to prevent that child from doing that again. You have to do something to show that that's not acceptable. Now, by the Queen knowing full well that your son's a nonce, and it's, he's proven to be a wrong one, by you not doing anything about it, you're sending the message down the line to, well, hold on, if he can get away with it, fuck am I listening to you for? And and, and this is this is a problem, and I think that the Queen herself has to make a stand at some point and say, well, hold on, if you've done wrong, you're no different from no one else. You've got to pay the price for what you've done, because if not, the wrong signals are getting sent down the line. And it's, it, 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 I think that attitude is being adopted now. It's like, why why should you be rich and me not? So I'm going to get rich in any way I can. And the way they go is by selling drugs, by doing aggravated burglaries. I mean, I see a thing on um, uh, Scar City Studios. Big shout out to Scar City Studios. Does an amazing job. Um, I see a thing yesterday on, on his channel. There was five kids. These ain't adults. These are kids that have lost their lives in London. And there's actually video footage of this kid standing outside a kebab shop. This kid comes from nowhere, stabs him straight in the fucking neck. It's like, what is going on? Like, I, I just, I don't understand why taking a life solves the problem. I really don't. Because the same way that you've just said about if you shut a meth house down, one opens up somewhere else, you've just stabbed that kid because he owes you money or he's robbed someone. So you kill him. Next week, someone else is going to do it to you. So what are you going to do? Keep killing people. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's an endless cycle of violence. And one more thing, though. I've got a question for you then. So there is a crime that if a parent found out their kid had done it, they never, ever report it to the police. Well, it's in itself, it's perverting the course of justice, and isn't do, it? Yeah. do you know what crime that is? No, go on. Weed possession. Is it? Yeah. If a parent finds weed, the kid's weed, they would not call the police. Why would they call the police and get the kid a criminal record for yeah. a bullshit charge that they don't believe people should be going to prison for in the first place? Well, it is. I mean, you look at the, the biggest fuck-ups in criminal history... Number one on my list was the prohibition of alcohol in America. <laughs> you basically gave the mafia a license to print money. And all of that money was then funded into crime. Now, even though we didn't have the prohibition here, how can you say as a government that it's okay to go into a pub and buy yourself a pint? Bearing in mind, and I'll remind you of this, alcohol is a drug. It is a drug. So you go into a pub, you're illegally allowed to buy your alcohol, get your little high, get pissed and go home. But you're not allowed to roll a spliff because that's that's bad. You're not allowed to do that. And if you get caught doing that, we're going to throw you in prison as a child. And then in turn, you're fucking the rest of his life. Because a lot of these kids that are coming from poor backgrounds, once you put them into that prison setting, they're only going to get worse. They don't get better. And I, I'm, it, it, it angers me that... A lot of these kids that are going into prison, and it's, it's like I said before, the College of Crime. They're going in, they're learning new criminal methods, they're learning new ways to make money um, in criminality. So what are you setting up that child to be? Because it ain't an IT professional, it ain't a lawyer, it's a criminal. So how can you still say that a Young Offenders Institute for minor offences is solving 
that problem with kids. It's not. And I, I believe, I think they should bring in some form of boot camp. I think it would have such... I mean, if you look at people that have joined the army, I'd love to know the percentage of people that have been in the armed forces that within the 10 years that they come away from the armed forces, how many of them commit criminal offences? And my guess in it, it is quite low. Now, for me, if you take a child, instead of throwing him into a Young Offenders Institute, why don't you set up a boot camp with ex-military ex, uh, personnel to, to get them into a regime, to show them structure, to, sh to show them discipline, to show them that there is other ways to progress in life. That would have a better effect on that child than locking him in a cell for 23 hours a day with another criminal. It, it, it's just it's a no-brainer for me. It's creating fodder for the legal system. Of course There's, it is. The legal system is now one of the biggest employers in the world. Of course it is. Prisons would empty if drugs were laws were reversed and a lot of people would be out of jobs. And do you know what? I had an interesting conversation with my solicitor the other day. And I, he's been my solicitor. Big up to Aurora Lodi Heath, Ricky Aurora. Um, he basically said to me that when I was a kid, he was constantly represented. Every Wednesday, I was in court, at uh, the youth offending court. And even he said to me on the phone the other day, the way it was back then compared to now, and this is coming from a geezer who's been a solicitor for 30, 40 years, he says bullshit. He said all it is is paperwork and bullshit. They don't care about the individual. They don't really care about the offences because all they're after is the result. So it then becomes a statistic to somehow shine a light on the government that they're doing something good. You're not. You've lost the battle on drugs. Everyone is saying the same thing in here and America. There was a um, the, the documentary White Boy Rick. You had a, a judge that was, um, she was actually, I think she was the daughter of the judge that imposed the original sentence on Rick when he got fucking however 100 years or whatever he got. And even she said on camera, and I was, I'll take me out of to her, because she said, the war on drugs is lost. We lost. So when are the governments going to wake up and start changing the way we're doing things? Because we can't go on forever like this. It's just impossible. So end the war on drugs and put all those resources into going after the paedophiles. Yeah, it won't be a bad thing. Tell us, starting with Prince Andrew. All right, so going for broke on the run. Going for broke. That was, um, I was on the run for, for multiple offences. Um, I think I was looking, uh, I think I was, well, my solicitor informed me I was looking at 14 years plus for everything that I was on the run for. Um, I was on the run for two, just under two years. Um, and when you're, and this in itself is another thing that breeds crime. If you're on the run, your normal day-to-day -day stops. I can't go in the bank. I can't go to my mum's house. I can't go to any of my close friends' house because everyone's under Robbo. They're getting knocked on the doors, left, right, and centre. Where is he? Where is he? So in, in the criminal way of looking at things, I now need to fund my lifestyle. Now, I can't go and get a job. So the level of criminality increases tenfold. And that, I would say, was the most dangerous part of my life. I mean, the amount of things I've done and the amount of occasions I could have lost my life or come to serious harm, that was the, the, the culmination of it all in that time period. I mean, it didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter that... Someone had rung someone and rung someone and said there's 100 grand under a bed. Sweet, I'll go and take the door off. Because that was the mentality you had to survive. And luckily for me, I mean, I told you in the last podcast about the big police chase with the Range Rover. We were off to 16 police cars. That that was me getting arrested. That that was the end of that period for me. 
Um, and then obviously I ended up in hospital with something wrong with my heart because of the, the, the drugs that I was doing at that time in my life. And it's, it's, it's so easy to spiral out of control. Now, for me, I've always said that I had a good support network. But if you take an individual that's come from an impoverished background that hasn't got that support mechanism in place, they will go for broke. And now this is why you're seeing people dying, because a lot of these kids, it's like I'm on bail for this. I'm looking at 10 years or I'm on the run. I'm looking at 15 years. There is nothing that individual is not going to do. And normal members of the public, you're you're given this illusion and I say and I, and I, it is an illusion I mean I remember I had a conversation with a police officer that someone had come to my house and I'd run out the front and I'd battered this geezer for the simple fact that you would come to my house and I didn't even have kids at that stage but the the criminal code says if you've got a problem ring me up we're coming to meet we're sorted you don't go to people's houses where their families are so I've ended up busting this geezer up and I remember the police turned up the geezer didn't press charges and he was like why didn't you ring 999 I was like, what fucking planet are you living on? I was like, how long did it take you to get here? And he was like, oh, no, about six minutes. I said, I will go through a door. I will stab every individual in the house and I'll be gone in four. So what fucking good are you? And you're giving this illusion to the members of the public that all they have to do is dial 999. They're in and they're out. If they're, if they're proper top tier criminals, they're through your door and they're out in minutes. The police are no good to you. So... By not acting, and this is what I always say, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the top 5% of the UK's nation, that top tier of millionaires, billionaires, the people that are well off. They're the people that have the influence to, to create change, I believe, at government level because they have these friends that know people that are in these high power positions. If you want to keep your family safe, you need to open that thing in your head called a mouth and you need to start communicating people that the systems that are in place aren't working. And that's not me guessing at it, that's coming from my point of view of, I've been in that shit life for a lot of years, and I'm telling you, it's not working, and it's going to get worse and worse, if you think the the, the murder rate is bad now, watch what it's like in 5-10 years time, because it, it's, it's going to continually get worse, and the reason that it's going to get worse is that the youngers look up to the olders, now for me, the olders weren't really killing people, but there were people that were selling a lot of drugs, they were doing a lot of criminality, they were earning a lot of money. So that's what you looked up to. The youngers that are coming through now, their olders are killing people. So it's now embedded in their brains. Now what happens is it has a knock-on effect. The next tier of youngsters that come up are now looking at these youngsters as the olders. They're all killing people. What do you think these other ones are going to do? It's just going to get worse and worse. And it, it's something needs to be done about it very, very quickly. I'd say in the next five years. It's tearing the fabric of society apart. So the whole drug law thing's got to be changed. And these people who are profiting from it, it's going to blow up in your faces at some point. There's going to be like just mass unrest. Like we've seen in America. You know, all these black guys, you can't walk through a neighborhood. The cop's going to shake you down. Maybe they're going to kill you. Yeah, I know. All right, so... Getting smarter at my peril. That was the prison sentence. So I've said this before. Prison is, is, is the college of crime. So I went into prison then knowing what I knew criminal-wise. By the time I'd come out, I had a 100 new ways to make money. And I had a 100 new contacts that I could do that through because of the people I met in prison. And this is the problem that I, I'm talking about with the young offenders. They can go in as a minor criminal they will come out as a major criminal. I've got a very close friend uh, that I am see with, um, 
and he's got a son and he's on that path where he's so ingrained in that life that he can't see any other way out of it. And and this is the problem. When I come out of prison, fair enough, you get put on probation. Probation's a load of bollocks. It don't work. It's, it shouldn't even exist because it's, it's, it's a load of crap. Um, there was no support systems in place to show me that there was another way. There was a, another route I could go. All it was was, if you fuck up, we're throwing you back in prison. Mm. Great pep talk, I'll crack on. <laughs> and it's like, that that for me is a major problem. If we're gonna if we're gonna start change, it needs to be at all levels. And I believe the government need to look at silly things like community service or your probation, and even down to the courses that they're asking people to do in prison to gain early release. They're all bullshit. It's like you're not gonna go into prison as an addict and sit in a room with some hippie going, "You shouldn't do drugs." Because he's going back to his cell and he's getting on the spice. He's only doing it because he wants to go home and get proper gear. So they're not working. And I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just know that the government needs to stop having the attitude of we only listen to people in power. I, I believe that's a major problem. If you've got reformed characters like myself that are offering to give you the perspective of what we've seen and the experiences we've had with what you've put in place, you need to start listening to these sort of people because that's what affects change. We know what works and what don't because we've been through it. All you're doing is saying, do this talk, it'll benefit them. It's not. And quite often, it's usually a government contract that's handed out to Oh, of course to a it is. Someone's early million somewhere laughing yeah. right off. Paul Abitha. Paul Abitha. So, Paul Ibiza, um was MC Shabba's manager, and he was the owner of MC Convention. So, my love for drum and bass was growing at that point. I loved MCing, I, I love writing lyrics. Um, and by pure chance, I was going out with a girl called Nikki, and her next door neighbour, Tiggy, was going out with Paul Ibiza. And she had heard me MC and said, oh, I've got to introduce you to Paul. She said, have you got a demo tape? And I gave the demo tape over and he loved it. And he said, look, I want, I want to give him a shot. And he introduced me to the rave scene, basically. And this is back when Terry Turbo, or people know him as Terry Stone now from Rise of the Foot Soldier films. He was doing a lot of rave parties back then. And uh, it sort of introduced me to the larger crowds, like the 5,000 plus crowds. And it's um, that in itself is like a drug. Um, and that for me... It introduced me, and it, it it's weird because it was kind of a fluke that it happened, but like I was just saying about finding another way away from crime, and that sort of made me think, well, hold on, if I focus on this, I can make this go somewhere. Mm. But the problem was I was trying to juggle both, mm. and it, it, it's never going to work. And um, I ended up getting, getting the five years, and that brought all of that to a halt. Innovation in the sun and on tour. Yeah, that's uh, when I came out. Um, the MC convention thing had kind of fizzled out. Um, MC Shabba had moved on to doing a, an event called High Level, and they sort of had their own clique. And I got involved with another group called NWS, um, and we started to get bookings. And we went to Lorette de Mar in Barcelona, and it's like a five-day event. Um, you sort of MC in a club and then you MC on a boat party and then they do this thing called Bangers and Splash that MC Skibbity does. And it's like a great big um, outside arena stage. But it, when you walk to the edge of the stage, it's just a massive outdoor swimming pool and everyone's in it splashing. Mm. And what a great experience. 
What's it like when you're looking out at the crowd and they're moving to your beats? It's brilliant. That's yeah. what I was saying. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's better than any drug mm. because for that one moment, everyone's fixated on you. Yeah. And when you, you know you've got a talent and people are enjoying it. Mm. I mean, I went to, um, it's funny, I went to Margate um, last Saturday mm. uh, for someone that was doing an event up there. And we went up there and as soon as, and this is in Margate, I've never been to Margate in my life. And I walked through the door and straight away this kid come up to me and he went, I remember the first time I ever saw you at Stratford Rex. And I was like, yeah, wow. so that was a few years ago. He went, you're the one that made me start in writing lyrics. Wow. And that in itself, is it, it affects change. Yeah. Do you think if that person hadn't seen me MC, he could have become a drug dealer. Mm. But because he saw me doing something positive, he went on to do it himself. And mm. that's what it's all about. Burning the candle at both ends. That's This is what I'm saying. I was trying to trying to juggle life as a criminal and as a music artist and I'm trying to on one hand go to stages and perform but on the other hand I've got to fund the lifestyle that I'm living mm. and there was a I think it's called the Old Bank in um, it's like a pub or like a pub club in uh, Epsom and I was booked to play there and we was actually en route and we actually had a blowout in the car and we, we pulled over and for whatever, we, we didn't make it in time, we missed a set. And we rung the promoter and he's like, look, there's no point in coming, you've missed a set. We apologised mm. and we come away. And um, when I got arrested, the two CID officers that um, were after me, he said, why didn't you go to that booking? And I was like, we had a blowout. He said, fucking lucky you didn't because we was in there waiting for you. <laughs> they was in there plotted up waiting to nick me. And um, But it, I just, it, I have to get it across that the trend now with young people, it, it, music is a big thing. You've got your drill music, you've got your drum and bass MC, and you've got your rap. We had Skengdo and AM in here the other month. That's it. And yeah. look how where they're going with it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And I believe it's the responsibility of the established artists to show the way, to pave the way, and to, to open up the avenues for these kids that have got talents to progress. I believe that criminality is creeping into the music scene where it shouldn't be mm. and it's again it, it's, it's society as a whole I mean social media has played a massive part in it and I believe that the government should be coming down on social media and app sites um, for, for the messages that they're projecting and I'll give you an example I've got an 11 year old stepdaughter and she said to me I want to do modelling and I was like that's great don't mind you doing modelling. Obviously, you'd supervise it. You go with her because you're about all the shit that goes on. Mm -hmm. And I, I was on my phone and I was, I was, I was doing something on my phone. You know, you get these pop-up ads. Mm. This pop-up ad come up and it was uh, a cartoon girl with like rough hair and a bit of dirt on her cheek. And then a fella comes in and a speech bubble come up saying, I really like you. And the next thing is this little blonde cartoon girl comes in and goes, are you joking? And he walks off with a pretty one. And the next thing it says, how do I change myself to make him like me? And I'm like, what fucking message are you putting across to kids that are seeing that? Why have you got to look a certain way to get yourself a boyfriend? And it's, it's these things that are pre-programming kids that are growing up to have that interpretation in life. And I believe it's irresponsible for these companies to be making money off the back of it because... You're making some little girl that doesn't think she's good looking to go and cut herself or to go and cause herself harm because she doesn't believe she fits in. And I think it's bullshit. And I'm not I'm not happy with even you look at Mark Zuckerberg. How much money has Mark Zuckerberg got? But yet you've got all every time I go on my Facebook page now, 
I've got things popping up from women saying, do you want to see my wet pussy come to my site? You're telling me you built this fucking website and you can't filter that shit out. And it's like the kids can see this and I, there, there's not enough protection for it. And I, it's the same with music. I believe if you go on YouTube now and you're looking at music, if you look at Stormzy, you're not seeing Stormzy in an old clapped out Mini Cooper. He's driving around the field in a brand new Rolls Royce 4x4. And he, you're giving that impression that this is the life, this is how... It in reality, no, it's not. You don't drive around in fields in a Rolls Royce. You've done it for a music video. That's not life. You don't do that sort of thing. It's an expensive car. You're not going to take it on a field. But for the younger kids that are growing up, it's you're giving that impression that it's money to burn. It's all champagne. It's all pretty girls. But they need to start showing the other side of it. And I, I believe it's their responsibility to show the struggle that they had in breaking through into the mainstream, how they done it, the route they went. And I think it's it's the responsibility of the artist to not portray and glamorise crime in, in, in a good light because I believe it's having a bad effect on, on the young ones coming up. Definitely. Back in the game. Back in the game. So I came out of prison uh, just under three years later. Um when I went in, as I say, you had the olders, but a lot of the olders were either getting arrested or they'd made their money and they'd moved on. So when we came out, I was in a very good position that the people that were left, we was either friends with or they didn't really want to get involved with us or in our way. Mm. So it was kind of like we had free reign in the local areas, do pretty much whatever we liked, which is brilliant because you can just go around and do whatever you want um, without any repercussions. And you sort of start committing offences and when there's no repercussions, it sort of spurs you on to commit worse offences, to get involved in worse crimes. And again, it's it's down to the lack of opportunity. I mean, if I had to come out from that sentence and someone had pulled me into a room and said, look, we can see by your offending history the way you're going. Mm. You're still young. Now, we want you to meet Jeff. Jeff's a millionaire, he owns his own company and he's willing to give you a chance to put you on a wage and you can start working your way out in the company. That don't happen. So for me getting out of prison and some prick in probation going, why don't you go and get a job in McDonald's? Mm. Yeah, of course I'm going to do that, mate. It's, it's not going to happen. You're going to go out and you, you want to earn the money to live the lifestyle you want to leave. And I believe that the opportunities for young people, because the money isn't substantial enough for them to live the way they want to live. Crime is the only alternative. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that if you're a criminal and you come out of prison, you should be given a 35 grand year of job straight off the bat. You should have to earn it, but you should at least give them the opportunity and the avenue to pursue that career, to give them a way out. Anything for a friend. Anything for a friend. So, boy called Jack decides in his wisdom to go and kick someone's door off and they basically steal a load of watches, expensive watches and the people that they were stolen from turn out to be very unsavoury characters, not the sort of people you want knocking at your mum's front door and aren't afraid to pull something out and stick it to your head. Now, all of a sudden, people's windows are getting blown out. Um, he's in panic mode, so... I've got myself involved. And this, again, is it's all part of criminality. You can go from having nothing to do with a situation to then you're in the thick of it and you're putting yourself in danger. So I managed to get hold of this, this geezer. Uh, we arranged a meet. And I basically said, look, they're going to go around to your mum's house. 
they're going to knock on the door. Odds on they're going to blow your mum's legs off. They're not happy. We've got to go on this, mate. So reluctantly, we went along. Now, we met in a car park, and I'll never forget the look on this kid's face. Because, and I always say this, you can always judge someone by the way they react in a bad situation. Now, you've got all of these little wannabe gangsters going round when they're with all their mates, and they're, oh, you won't fuck with it. When someone comes through their door and they're on their own, that's where your true colours are shown. Because you either pick sand cup and fight, or you jump out your bedroom window and run for your life. And people do that with their mum and dad still in the fucking house. This is Mr. This is Mr. Gangster. You just left your mum and dad in the house with a load of geezers. This van pulled in the car park, a VW transporter, and the side door opened and they kitted out, plasticed the whole back of the van out. And the geezer was in a DNA suit, sat there with a piece in his hand. And my mate went white like a sheep. But I knew that he had to be questioned by these people because the alternative to it was they were going to target his family. So I've had to persuade him and coax him into the back of the van. Um, we basically said that their driver, that uh, the coming to follow car, had to stay with us. I made it abundantly clear that if my mate didn't come back, your mate ain't going to be coming back to you. Um, they took him away, they questioned him, and they brought him back with not a scratch on him. Um, what a nice bunch of fellas. Even though they was horrible, they was fair. And you don't get a lot of that nowadays. Not a lot of people abide by them sort of rules. Once they get hold of you, they hurt you. But um, Did he have to give the merch back? He had to pay the money back. Um, and again, it's another thing that breeds crime. Because if, you, if you're going through someone's door and they've got 100 grand's worth of watches... How do you think they've got the money to buy them watches? It ain't from working in Sainsbury's. It's because odd them they're a big dealer. Now, you're all of a sudden in that person's pocket. So even though you're not a drug dealer, you've got to pay me this money back. Have you got the money? No. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to take this from me and you're going to sell it. You're not earning a penny out of it and all that money's come back until the debt's paid. So that in turn then brings on more criminality and affecting more families with kids because... You're not then just in a position where you're selling to your friends. You will sell to your grandmother if it gets you the money to pay the debt off. And so they don't care if they're 12 years old, 15 years old. They don't. They just don't care. And it just breeds more violence. How many times did you have to mediate situations like that? Oh, a lot. A lot. There's been many times over the years where we've been on meets with people. And some of them are very, very serious criminals. These are people that you really don't want to get on the wrong side of. And I mean... You don't, I mean, these people do still exist, but the morals are changing. And it's because of the level of violence that's being used. And this goes back to what I said earlier, that gone of the days of you just, I mean, do you know the only people that do it now? Travellers. Believe it or not, as much as people want to put travellers down because of the way they live, they've got it fucking spot on. If you've got a member in one family that's got a dispute with another family, you get them together, they have a fight, they shake hands, they go home to their kids. If you're in London, he's done it, go and kill him. And it's like, see, you, you can't knock... Tra- I mean, I, I've known travellers all my life. I've, I've grown up with them. I think they're brilliant people. Travellers are no different from any other people in any other walk of life. You get good ones and you get bad ones. The majority of the ones that I've met are extremely loyal They've got good morals and a very good ethic code. And they will, they will back you 100% if you're ever in trouble. But on the same note, you get bad ones that are arseholes. But you get arseholes in all walks of life. But, I mean, you look at people like Tyson Fury. And I'll take my hat off to Tyson Fury because he's had the bollocks 
to keep his mentality and say it how he is. You get a lot of famous people that are that are coached. So a lot of famous people have media coaches. So they're informed on how to answer questions, what not to say to box yourself in to get a question back. But Tyson's never done that. He says it how it is. And I, and I really respect the man for that because I believe you need more people like that. I mean, if you look at people like... Ariana Grande, I can't stand the cunt. I think she is the worst role model for kids on the planet. I mean, for me, dancing around on a stage in a fucking bikini, telling everyone how sexy you are, and you've got an audience of 13-year-olds and up, you're an arsehole and you're making money off of it. What people like that should be doing is saying, look, you can be successful, but you can have your dignity about you and make the money at the same time. And the messages that a lot of these artists are giving out is the wrong message. And what annoys me is that what these kids are seeing, they think that that's who they are. And it's not. They're, they're, you look at Rihanna. What do you think these people are like this, how they are in camera in real person? They're walking around in their shorts at home with a fag in their mouth and their belly hanging out like the rest of us. But when they're on camera, they act a certain way. And it's all because of being blackballed. If you're famous and you say the wrong thing, you're you're discarded from the industry. And it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's because you've said it how it is. Now, in Tyson Fury's case, he can get away with that because he's the heavyweight champion of the world. You can't take that belt off of him unless he loses it in the ring or unless he does something behavioural-wise for the, for the governing bodies of the belt to strip it from you, which in his case did happen. But he still came back. And he, he, he even though he went through the depression and the drug addiction, he came back and he still continued to say it how it was. And he, I, I respect the man for that. Yeah, I watched him on True Geordie. Amazing interview. Brilliant, man. Brilliant, man. You mentioned then you had to mediate a lot of situations. Yes. Yeah. What was the most difficult one for you that you mediated and what happened? That was one of the most, I wouldn't say difficult, but that was the most risky because it it was one of those situations where even though we knew people that knew both parties, the relationship wasn't strong enough to guarantee that when you pulled up in that car park, people weren't waiting to let off shots at you. So you was immediately putting yourself in danger. I've had... Other situations, and this is a funny one, so it's actually funny. The same person that got addicted to heroin, he was in a pub in Feltham. It's now a block of flats, but it, it used to be right on the um, the Sawyer's Arms, I believe it was called, in Feltham. And I'm with my mates, and I get a phone call, and it's Dan. And I answer the phone, and he's like, I've got a problem. And I was like, what problem you got? He said, I've been grabbed hold of two fellas. They're looking for you. And if you don't come to the pub now and see them, they're going to kidnap me. And I went, brilliant. Keep them there. We'll come down. So I pull up and I pull up into this car park. Now, for me, if I'm if I'm going and I know violence is going to happen, you're going prepared. You're either going to have San Konya. You're not going to turn up in a Hawaii pair of shorts and a vest top. You go in hooded up. You've got your gloves. You've got everything you need. So I pull up in the car park and this geezer walks out in a pair of shorts and a pair of flip-flops. And I've kind of like acted it down. Now, as soon as he's in range, I've banged him. And it was fucking hilarious because he's out cold in the middle of the road. And, you know, the person that gave it more was his bird. The bird's mouth was going ten to the dozen. It lasted about ten seconds before someone whacked her and she was laying next to him unconscious as well. And it's like these people don't think what they're bringing on. Do you know what I mean? Like with us, we always tend to do... Our homework. If you if you was going to rob Sank or you was going to take Sank, you wanted to know where it was coming from because you needed to know the headache that would ensue afterwards. You're not gonna you're not gonna go to North London or Islington 
unprepared because of certain families that we know of that live there and take something off someone and they're involved in it. Do you know what I mean? So you're not going to put yourself in that position. So we'd always do our own work. You'd only target people that you could not only get away with it, but that you could handle the repercussions afterwards. Yeah. All right, family problems. That was 2015. So I'd say that was the last time in my life where mentally I wasn't unstable, but I started to spiral out of control. I went through a horrible divorce um, with my ex-wife, or shit cunt as I refer to her. Um, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a devastating time in my life. I went through custody battles with my son. I lost all my possessions. I ended up getting banged up. Um, and it, it, was, it was a very horrible time in my life. And it, if it hadn't have been for positive people around me and close friends, I could have easily have gone back to what I knew best. And this is this is the thing. If you haven't got those opportunities, you always go back to what you know you're good at. But the problem with me, that was crime. And the, the bad side to that is you're either going to die or you're going to end up laughed off in prison. And like I've said to you this before, I've got, I've got friends that are doing like fucking 20, I think 36 years or something they got, three of them. And these are people I go out partying with, you're doing 36 years in prison. For robberies, is that? It's a, that was actually a robbery gone wrong. That was, um, they went and done a, a tie-up in a geezer's house that was a jeweller. Uh, they tied him to a chair and the geezer had a heart attack. <sighs> so... Being the brain boxes that they were, they thought we need to get rid of the evidence. So they set the whole house on fire with him mm. still in it. The problem was that when forensics went to the house, the geezer's still tied to the fucking chair. So they knew it weren't natural causes. Um, and then you got your cell site and everything else that they went through to get them. And there was videos from petrol garages where they bought the petrol. Mm. But they got like 36 years. You're just going to be like 60, 70 year old when you get up. And it's like, it's just a never ending cycle of shit. And... I call it like prison is like the pause button on your remote. So if you watch EastEnders and you want to nip out to the kitchen on your live TV, you press pause, you go and do what you've got to do, you come back and then you pick up from where you left off. That is what prison is. It's not a deterrent. It's not a way of deterring criminals away from criminality. You're literally pressing pause because the second they get out, they're carrying on from where they left off. I like that description. So, out to prove a point. Yeah, and this goes back to the custody battles and the situation I was in at the time. I had to sit down and I had to decide where my life was going. Did I carry on doing what I was doing? Did I carry on pursuing criminality to fund a lifestyle? Or did my kids have to start coming first? And for me, it was a no-brainer. Your kids come first. I didn't want to be that person that was having their kids constantly brought up on prison visits and trying to maintain a relationship and giving fatherly advice. How the fuck can you give fatherly advice from a prison cell? Mm. Don't you do it. And I'm sitting in a cell. It's not exactly a role model. So I had to to decide at that point that enough was enough. Mm. And, it, and it was. And I mean... The way criminality is now, it's a hundred times harder to do anything and get away with it. And the difference is, I would say, was 20 years ago, if you went to do something and you didn't get arrested at the scene, mm. odds on you get away with it. But the technology that, that you have now, it's not the actual offence that gets you nicked. It's the after bit. If you don't know what you're doing afterwards, mm. 
whether it's getting rid of merchandise, telling the wrong people, you get nicked. And a classic example is that is the Hatton Garden heist. Mm. You've done the job to perfection and then you fucked it up afterwards mm. and bought it all on top for yourselves. And now the technology they've got, you're fighting a losing battle. I mean, I can't stress enough to these kids that you could go two years, you could go five years, you could go ten years without getting a nick. But eventually someone's going to open their mouth. Someone's going to get nicked. And to get out of that charge, they're going to drop your name. And now they're on you. And when they're on you, they're on you. They ain't going to leave off. They want to come for everything you've got. They want to take you away from your family. They want to put you behind bars. So for me, it's, it's, it's risk-reward. Do you know what I mean? And this is what I just don't get with these killings. I just I, I don't get it. Do you honestly think you're going to kill someone? And this is this is the bit that I don't get. So you go and stab someone to death and you get away with it. You don't get arrested. But the people that are doing it then believe it's it's up in their reputation. But in order for it to up your reputation, people need to know that you've done it. And one of those people that you know have done it, they're going to get a nick and they're going to go, listen, I know someone who got murdered and I know who done it. You're going to get mm. nicked. So now you've got this big hard man reputation, but now you're lifed off. So your reputation might get you the triangle for the next pool game on association, but it ain't helping you outside. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's 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 got to stop. It, it depresses me, and it really does anger me. And I I mean I was I was at home the other night, and one of my mates brought it up, and I physically got agitated with it because I'm sick to death of seeing these young kids die, and these are they're like 14, 15 year old kids, and they're being and they're being murdered for what? And uh, something needs to be done about it because, like I say, it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse really bad. A slight blip. A slight blip was the uh, the armed robbery charge. With all the good intentions in the world, I'd gone the right way, I had my own place, I was working, I was doing everything the right way. I go out about a fucking Rolex watch and I get a gun pulled on me. And it's like, you try and get away from it and you just, you, you can't get away from it. Do you know what I mean? And again, it, it comes back to what I was saying about the 999 call. I got, I got arrested and I get taken to Loddon Valley Police Station. And the first thing the police officer says to me is, well, why didn't you call the police? And I'm like, the geezer's got a gun to me. What what do I do? Say, hold on a minute, mate. Ring night. I'm about to be shot. Hurry up. Well, what world are you living in? Like, in reality... You've got, with a gun especially, I've always said this, if you get a gun pulled on you, you've literally got seconds to react. Running away ain't an option because you'll get shot in the back. You need to get hold of that gun and you need to isolate that individual with it as quickly as possible. And that's what we've done. We took the gun off him, we beat him up and we left. Did they believe us? No, they didn't. It took us six fucking months, another six months of my life and putting me kids through all of that just to prove we was innocent. And But it's just one of those things, you have to get on with it. But now I'm very careful about people I associate with, situations I get myself into. And it's so easy to fall into that trap of you can be sitting at home with all the best intentions in the world and all of a sudden one of your mates rings you. Oh, you've got to get around my house. I've got people coming around there. Now, your best mate, you're going to be like, what? Especially if they've got kids there, I'm going to come around there. And I'll give you a prime example of this. Um, a geezer called Matt Busby. Hi to Buzz if you're watching. He, uh, he was a professional kickboxer, world-renowned kickboxer, world champion. Um, and someone in Portsmouth, I believe it was, or somewhere around that time, he got his next-door neighbour to babysit his kids. 
and the kid come back and said this geezer had attempted to come into the bedroom and do things to this child that shouldn't mm. be done. Now, Buzz, with all the best intentions in the world, thought we'd go around and we'd give him ID in. He's kicked him in here once, killed him stone dead. He's done 20 years. Like, he's out now, but it's it's... I need to put it across that any situation can escalate to that level so quickly. And before you know it, it's done. And there's no taking it back. So for me now, it's it's isolating myself to the point of I'm only dealing with people that are a positive influence on my life. Um, people that are not really doing stuff at a high level because, like I said... You can be hanging around with them, then you're guilty by association, you're pulled into a conspiracy charge. So I'm very careful about who I talk to and what I do now, because I have to be. So the last one is time to change. And while you answer that, I'm going to pull my phone out and see if you've got any questions below the last video. But you can go ahead and tell us time to change. Yeah, and this is going back to the, um, the technologies and the way that the police forces, the governments are working in the UK now. Um, the technologies that these people have and the... The criminals that are younger, they're, I wouldn't say narrow-minded, I'd say more uneducated in the ways of the police. So they're fixated on the AMPR cameras or they're fixated on cell sighting. But there's so much more stuff that goes on behind the scenes for the police to catch up. And like I said before, you're fighting a losing battle. There is no quick fix. And for all of those kids that watch this, that are sort of at that time in their life where... They're waiting for that one big move. They're waiting for that one life-changing move that's going to set them up for life. Odds on it ain't going to happen. But what you are going to get is a large prison sentence or someone's going to end up dying in the process of you trying to achieve it. So slowly wins the race. Nothing in life comes quickly. And I've said this before, if you're a music artist, if you want to pursue, pursue your music career... Do it, but do it in the right way. Stay away from crime. Stay away from people that are involved in crime. Because when you get to a certain level in music where you're dealing with the big corporations like Sony, they're not going to want you coming to the studio with gangbangers. They're not going to want that because you're then putting their reputation at stake. So they're not going to want to do that. And I mean, you could look at um, the Hernandez on Netflix. Have you seen that documentary, mm, The Football Player? No. He had it all. Uh, if anyone hasn't watched that, um, watch it. I can't remember the exact title, but it's, it's a geezer called Hernandez. He played for the New England Patriots. He was a world-famous player. Um, he, I think he was 23 and he got a $40 million contract. He was He had the world at his feet. But because he wanted to pursue the life with the gangbangers, the popular people, mm. like for no other reason than his own mentality of he wanted to be seen in those circles, mm. he ended up involved in, in two murders. And it, 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 he ended up going to prison. He ultimately ended up committing suicide. And, no. he, and, and, and this is the thing. He ultimately committed suicide because there was a clause in the New England Patriots contract that if anything happened to him, that to honour the contract to his family. So what he'd done was he committed suicide in the hope that his, his partner and his kid would get the money. But I believe they're fighting it all the way. And when you're talking about the New England Patriots, they've got a bottomless pit of money. So they'll fight it all the way. But um, it's a really interesting documentary. So if you get time, definitely watch it. The same with uh, White Boy Rick. If you haven't seen that, if you want to see how easy it is... I mean, in, in America, you yourself know they dish out 100-year sentences like M&M's. Um, he was from America, and that is the perfect example of someone young 
trying to get involved with the olders, trying to be a part of that life. And in the end, he becomes a scapegoat and he was looking at like 100 years plus. He 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 got arrested with a, a geezer that had committed 20 murders, was a hitman. He actually went to the courthouse, was in a van. He was going to kill Rick on the way into the courthouse, but they took him in it through a tunnel underneath So because they knew he, they were targeting him. And this geezer that had killed 20 people, the way they film it is that you see him in a room with like a prison shirt on. And at the end of the documentary series, this geezer takes it off and he walks out his front door, he's out. But this white boy, Rick, is still in prison. You killed 20 people and you're out. But this poor cunt still sat in a fucking prison cell for selling a bit of gear. And this is it's the totality of the offences. It just doesn't make sense. So on your comment below your last podcast, you yeah. got 1,000 likes... 200 plus questions and comments. Yeah. Um, first one is, what part of London were you from originally and how old are you? I'm 37 now. So I grew up in... So I grew. I was born in Kingston Hospital and I believe my, I lived in Tolworth, I think was the first place that I lived. Then I moved to Staines Middlesex and then from there I went to the border of Sunbury and Feltham. And then that's where predominantly I grew up um, and I made a lot of my associations. So the people I used to hang around with were mainly from, I would say, West London. Um, even though we had friends all over London, it was predominantly West London where we operated. Paul has asked, really enjoyed the podcast. What do you think made you go down a life of crime? Do you think you would have ended up on a different path if you had different environmental factors or would you have always gravitated to the naughty kids and lifestyles? Yeah, I believe you're a product of your own environment. And this goes back to what you said about what parents can do to to keep their kids away from it. And I believe that, and it's not my mum and dad's fault, uh, but the people that I was associating with that I started to get in trouble with, when you're talking about minor offences back then, you're talking about criminal damage, stealing motorbikes, push bikes, it, robbing sheds. It was it was very low-level tier crime. But what I know now is that those lower offences lead on to bigger ones. Um, and this is why I'm saying to, to, to any parent that watches this, keep a close eye on your kids. Because if your kids get involved with the wrong people, it only escalates the further it goes down the road. And your kid can be the most well-mannered, well-spoken, well-behaved child. But believe me, if they're mixing with the, the wrong people, it can be something as simple as, do me a favour, my house is hot, no one suspects you, put this under your bed and hold it for me. Your house gets raided, your kid's got a criminal record. And already, he's got, he's got a, a bad start in life. So... You need to focus on the activities your kids are, are involved in. Make sure you're fully aware of the people they're associating with and what they're doing, even down to the background of the families. I mean, I've met families in the past with, with friends of mine where I've walked in the house and I've seen the state of the house and I've seen what the mum and dad are like. And then you look at your mate and you think, what fucking hope did you have? Do you know what I mean? And it's like, it's not their fault. It's just what they know. But I was lucky that I, I had a, a, a really good mum and dad. They've done a terrific job in supporting me. Same with my sister. Um, they've all supported me no matter what I've done throughout the years. But you have to remember that at both ends of the scale, not everyone was as lucky as what I was. And you've got people that are bottom end and they're the ones that really need to be looked after and given the opportunities. Georgie Wing has asked, were you in Blakehurst 2008? No, not Blakehurst, no. Another guy's asked if you get shit for your name. Nah. 
Not to my face, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was trying to place your face for ages until I saw a comment saying you was on a prison documentary. Did you ever do any time in Wakefield? Wakefield? No, not Wakefield. I swear Wakefield the Nancy's jail, on it? I think it's in the north, isn't it? It's a, I, think it's a, I think that's where um, the Sowen murderer... Really? Is, I think it's Wakefield. No, I tended to do... You like to put that on silent? Yeah, I've done it. It's a long guy and I've got to ring me boy. Um, i done prisons predominantly in London. So Wandsworth, Belmarsh, High Down. High Down I was in a lot. Um, and then when I got shipped out, it was more the Coventry... They called it the Triangle. So you've got High Point, Blunderston and... Oh, I can't remember. Not, I've got Wakefield in my head now. I can't remember. It was one where I finished my sentence off. Then I went to Chelmsford. I ended up in. I, I've, done, I've done a fair old few. Pentonville. Um, but it was predominantly the, the London jails. But because we lived on the Surrey border, if you get arrested in London, you predominantly went to Wandsworth. So Staines Magistrates, where we always tended to get remanded, from there you would go to Wandsworth. But then from Wandsworth, because it was in Surrey, you would go to Guildford Crown Court. And from Guildford Crown Court, you go to, to Highdown. So a lot of the time, we would end up in Highdown. Mm. Mr. Frankster said, Hi, Tony. How have you found getting into work and supporting yourself after you got out of prison? Did you come up against a lot of discrimination based on your background? Not really. I mean, you have to remember that even though you commit criminal offences... They become spent after a certain amount of time. So for a burglary, I think it's four or five years. So legally, when you go into a job and you're filling out the application, if your crime has become spent, you can legally put no to criminal convictions because they've become spent. It's only if you're going for a high clearance job, like working in the bank or working with the police, that you would have to declare the offences that you've been convicted from. So predominantly, I've always been an HGV driver. So I drive tippers. So they don't, them sort of companies, there's not really anything you can, you're not going to steal sand or mud. So I've never found it hard to get into work in that aspect. From Gregla Tazla. Hey, I'm born in 83 and from Feltham. So where did you go to school? I started off in Thamesmead School, which was in Shepparton. Then I went to Matthew Arnold. Then I went to Sunbury Manor for one day and got expelled. And then I finished in Bishop Wand, where I got expelled again. And then I went to a place called Hersham PRU, which was like the school for naughty kids. And then I got expelled from there as well. Yo-Yo said, Anthony, absolutely splendid podcast. My next door neighbor's cat keeps doing a doo-doo in my garden. How would you, I su- how would you suggest I tackle the situation? I was going to write a polite note to the owner but after watching your interview, I'm considering getting tooled up to the bloody eyeball <laughs> and going radio rental. <laughs> Go and buy a big dog. <laughs> <laughs> DJ Spider wants to know what raves you went to. Oh, over the years. I mean, MC Flight, um, who's my MC partner now, we used to do Best of British. We used to go to Bagley, Stratford Rex, uh, the SE1 Club underneath the Voxel Arches. Um, God knows how many around the country, Cardiff, Swindon, Manchester, uh, the NEC in Birmingham, uh, Carlin Academy, Brixton. I've, I've pretty much done all of them. Deb Powell wants to know, did you ever meet one of the G brothers inside? That's the Liverpool brothers, um, Danny and Darren G. Nah, not that. I think they're from Manchester, aren't they? Liverpool, Liverpool yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've never met them. I've seen a few of his, um, his podcasts, uh, but no, I've never met him. Ben Potter. 
Love the podcast. You've got a real talent for storytelling. I reckon you could do a lot of good sharing your story of young people because you're so relatable. Do you still live in the Bracknell area and train MMA? I live in Reading and we have a great gym called Malt House here. Would be great to see you down here. We watch the big UFC events. You're welcome to come and join us. That sounds like a plan. Yeah, I'm based <laughs> in Reading. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the MMA side of it, I don't really pursue anymore. Um, I'm solely the last year, I'd say. Um, I've predominantly been uh, concentrating on my acting, um, getting involved with productions, with the documentaries. Um, that's always been my dream. I mean, the, the MMA and the fighting was more of, I just love the idea of getting in a cage and you can smash the shit out of someone and not get nicked for it. So that that was more of the the element as to why I've done it. I never, when I started MMA, I knew from the outset that I was never going to be good enough to go to the next level like a Jimmy Manoa. I know you, you, some people are naive and they think they're going to come from nothing. You, you have to be a special talent to get to that sort of level. Um, so I knew f- just from people I was sparring with and from fights that I would watch, you, you need to be at a certain level to break through into that. Um, and I mean, there's some terrific talents coming through at the moment in MMA. Um, I, saw, I got a text from Jimmy the other day. I think he's over in Dubai. I, I watched the uh, the latest um, fight the other night with um, the the Russian guys. I can't remember his name. The Magdamadov. What a, what a, what a man that is. Um, he retired on the night, but what what a human being. The the shit he's been through, and his dad passed, and he won the fight, and then retired in the cage afterwards. And what a great role model he is. And the same with Jimmy. Um, if you if you're looking for role models, I mean, I've tried to get him to come on here, but he's so busy. But what a role model he is. I'm not only to other kids, but to his own kids. He's got two fantastic kids himself. Um, takes them everywhere with him, and he come from criminality to being a light heavyweight contender in the UFC. And it's, I mean, he's hes doing all he can to get the message out to try and reduce the violence on the streets. But it's very difficult when individuals are trying to do individual things. I think it needs to be more of a collective. Um, but like I say, the shit comes down from the top. And that's where the decisions need to be made. And I would implore, I would pray and beg that anyone at government level or MP that watches this podcast would... Get hold of you, get hold of me. So I would love to have input into to, to start in change, to come up with courses that actually help these kids, to come up with a plan for these kids to steer them away from crime. Trader Barry wants to know, did you ever rob anyone in Walton? More likely. <laughs> Dean Lewis, do screws regularly check through all your stuff in the cell for contraband or do they leave you alone? It depends on the type of prisoner you are. So with us, we was known for having phones um, and contraband and alcohol and things like that. Um, you would, They had a specialist. Most prisons have a specialist cell search unit. So you can get a general search, which will be the officers on the wing come in um, and they'll have a quick run through. And then you get the security, the actual security department of the prison will do a spot check search where they're coming to your cell based on intelligence and they will strip your cell to nothing. And they know every trick in the book. So for anyone that's been to prison, will know that you get a canteen list. And these are the items that you can purchase. A lot of people don't know is that before any item gets put onto that canteen list, it goes in front of security and they will dismantle that object 
to learn every single hiding place within it that something could be hidden, like a SIM card or a lot of the, you know, the roll-ons. So a lot of people will pop the roll-in ball out, put stuff inside, put the roll-on ball back in it. But because they've already done this, they know, so they would find them. Um, so yeah, if they come to do a search, you could have a sniffer dog that would be looking for drugs. Um, they have metal detectors and scanners. Uh, you would be strip searched. You can have scanners. You can go through a body search, a body scanner now. So yeah, they're they're pretty up to date with it. David Griffiths, hi Tony, fantastic work. I was just wondering if there were any books in prison that let you escape mentally from the four walls. I used to be a primary teacher in a mining town in the north, and I would just like to say you have so evidently missed your true calling as an educator. That's nice. Yeah, great comment. Uh, books. I used to in prison. I used to love Martina Cole. Um, she's a great author. I used to love reading her books. But then, the more books that I read, um, they they sort of get samey samey. It's like the same storyline, different characters. So I sort of decided that I would go outside of my comfort zone um, and start reading books that I had heard people mention that were great books. Um, but were not necessarily books that I would pick up. So Machiavelli, um, The Art of War, uh, Winston Churchill's autobiography was a brilliant book. Oh, um, yeah, I read that, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I find all of those, anything to do with uh, the World Wars, I'm a great yeah, fan Yeah, I was obsessed well. with that, yeah, World I was War obsessed II. With that. I mean, they've, they've, they've yeah. brought out World War Two in colour yeah. on Netflix. Yeah, I've been watching that. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. But um, it, you see a lot of people now where they're, they're moaning about, oh, it's COVID and we're, we're getting locked up for you. You see what these people went through in the wars. And it's, it's, it's nothing compared. Spoiled, aren't we? I mean, I don't know if you saw it on my wall, but there was a post going round. And it, it generally nearly brought me to tears because there was a picture of this little girl. She was a Polish girl. And she had been taken with her, her family. Her mum and dad had been killed in the gas chambers. And they basically, before they put the kids into the gas chambers, they took photos of them. And the photo that I put up was a picture of this poor child and the look in the eyes. It's like, you know, when you just resign to your fate, she knew she was going to die. Everyone around her had been killed. And then you listen to some prick moaning that he can't afford a new plasma for his wall. And it's like... You go back to them times and the heart, the, the the trauma that them kids went through, and then you think, all these years later, and how far humanity has come along technologically, and what we've achieved as a human race, and then we're still hearing about your Jimmy Savills that mm. are still causing this abuse to children, mm. and then they're not getting the sentences. It's like you're gonna burn, you're gonna burn my mate off for thirty six years because. Fair enough, the, the geezer died, he, he's done wrong, he, he, he deserved the 36 years. If you look at it as a, with that perspective, it, the totality of that offence, the geezer had a family, he died, you took his life. So yeah, you, the, the, it, it's warranted, the sentence. But then you're taking someone that's abused a child. Now, not forgetting that when you abuse a child, that offence for me doesn't stop with that abuse because... When that offence is finished, whether they're abusing them for one year, two years, three years, that's going to take that kid 15, 20 years, maybe never, of the psychological trauma that those offences have caused, but yet you're giving him three years. Like, where, I understand totality of offences when people are sentenced. I've just seen this X-Factor prick that got given years and you've reduced his sentence. Mm. Why have you... You never reduced none of my fucking sentences. So how comes his has been reduced? Do you know what I mean? It just makes no sense to me. And what you have to look at then 
is, why is this happening? And the first thing that pops to my mind is, well, Prince Andrew done it. He ain't had no, he ain't, he ain't getting banged up. So maybe it's this little thing, like this little hidden agenda or joke that we don't know about. You can go and abuse a kid and walk into court and know, oh, I ain't going to get long. It's all right, we can come out and do it again. That's why we're calling for an end to the war on drugs and all that resources going after the pedos. And we've got a four-hour documentary coming out about Jimmy Savile. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm at the part now where, um, where he's dead and they're selling off his memorabilia. And police departments all over the country yeah. have sent him all these gifts. And it's not like just two Jimmy Fanks. It's like, oh, oh we love God. you, Jimmy. Such warm wishes, Jimmy. Anything we could do. He was having meals. He had like weekly meat, weekly breakfast with him and everything. He was just, that's how protected he was by the cops. Do you know, I would have chopped my left bollock off for him to be my cellmate. I would have fixed it yeah, for him. I'm yeah, telling you. Yeah. Prick. So look out for that one. Four hour Jimmy Savile doc coming. UK's Hidden Shadows part two untouchable isn't it can't wait to see that i mean while we're on that topic if there's any child whether you're a young kid or you're in your early teens if you watch this podcast and you're suffering from any form of abuse whether it's from parents whether it's from uncles or cousins or maybe even your next door neighbor or a teacher at school don't think that you're all alone and that no one wants to help you all you have to do is pick up that phone, dial 999, and report the prick. Now, as much as I don't like police, I'm man enough to admit that as uh, as much as there's bad ones, there's some fucking good ones as well that want to help you. So if you're in that situation and you're in that place in your life where you can't see a way out of the situation you're in, there are people that can put a stop to it. So I'm asking you, be brave, be grown up, and do something about it. Phil Rock wants to know what's your best prison hooch recipe. Best prison hooch recipe. Uh, brown bread squashed up into little balls in your fist. Put it into a jug of boiling hot water. You leave it in there for about half hour till the water starts to cool. And then what happens is the yeast is extracted into the water. You then put that water into a big bottle, like a 10 litre drum, if you can get one from the cleaning cupboard. Fill it up with your orange juice. Two big bags of sugar, leave it on the hot pipe. But, and I stress the but, don't forget to put a hole in the fucking lid or the bottle will blow up and smother yourself in orange juice, which happened to us on a couple of occasions. So a small hole in the top of the cap and it releases the pressure so it doesn't expand and blow up. you got to burp it. Yeah. Kovlad wants to know, what's your training routine these days? How many reps do you do and days a week? Uh, not so much as what I was doing. When I was training, I would train every single day, uh, normally two or three times a day. Um, I got up to 200 kilograms on a bench press. I got up to 230 on a squat and 220 on a deadlift. Um, and with me, I was, I was never one for warming up. I used to do a few warm-up sets and then I would always go straight in heavy. Um... My diet would always be spot on, so I would cut all the shit out of my diet. I'd be having my protein shakes. Well, I'd be doing seven meals a day, um, and I'd be taking my vitamins and my supplements and my pre-workouts and post-workouts. With the gym, you get out exactly what you put in. So if you want to gain muscle mass and you want to increase your size, um, the first thing you need to sort out is your diet. Um, And I'll say this now to everyone watching that believes in this myth, you can't. Turn fat into muscle. It's bollocks. They're two completely different things. So 
what you need to do is if you're overweight, you need to, no different from a car, if you're driving to Wales, you ain't going to get there on a score petrol. It's the same thing if you're fat. You've already got the petrol, you need to burn it. So you need to burn all of the fat away, you need to increase your protein intake, stick to a regimented training session, keep your carbs down, high protein, work your bollocks off and you'll reach your goal. Some people are asking what socials you are on. And we're going to put those links in the description yeah. box. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, my account is Tony Gooch. And then I have my official Tony Gooch. And I have my official Tony Gooch Instagram. As well as Tony Gooch. I think it's 1238 something or other on Instagram. Gene Macker wants to know, are there any videos of your of your fights... Did you know Lee Murray? Any funny stories? No, Lee Murray, um, I never got to meet him, uh, but we fought under the same promotion. So he was cage rage, basically turned into UCMMA. And he um, he actually fought Anderson Silva. Uh, before Anderson Silva was famous, he actually fought Anderson Silva. And I believe it was a draw. I don't know if Anderson won, but um, I never got to meet him, but I've heard a lot of stories about him. And from what I gather, I know he's from the Kent sort of area. Um, from the people I've spoken to, he seems to be a very loyal and a nice geezer. Not someone you want to get on the wrong side of. Um, but I wish him all the best. I know he's due for release soon and I hope he can come out and turn his life around. I think he himself would be a great mentor to kids. Um, so, yeah, if he's listening, I wish him all the best. Did you ever get rich? Did I ever get rich? That's what someone's asked you. Well, for tax purposes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just loads of people basically saying how much they really enjoyed part one. Um, Lee Murray, didn't we just do him? Yeah. Another one about Lee Murray. When did you finally get released? What year? Uh, my last, Well, the last one for the armed robbery was 2018, and I'd done six months. Before that was the big one. I got remanded a few times, but it was, it was like three or four months. Uh, before that, I went in 2005, and I got out the middle of 2008. Um, that was after the, the five and a half years. Tommy wants to know, how did your relationship with the female officer come about? How did you keep it a secret for so long without it being obvious, e.g. going into cells together? It was just one of those things. When I, um, when I went into High Point, um, anyone that's been to High Point, you go onto an induction block, uh, you spend about a week there and then you get put onto a, a normal house block. And she was actually my personal officer. So when you walk into the block, you sort of go up to this desk and you, you report in and then you get escorted to your cell. She was the one that escorted me to my cell. Now, the second that I met her, we couldn't stop looking at each other. It was just one of those rare occasions where there was a mutual attraction. But you're in a situation of... Is it because I'm in prison and I ain't fucked no one for so long that I'm just reading this the wrong way? Or does she genuinely like me? So I sort of took a leap of faith because um, she kept on being nice to me. She she was very touchy-feely. Um, so I took the gamble and I wrote her a note and I said, look, I like her, blah, 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 blah. If I've read it the wrong way, don't nick me. I don't want to get in trouble. And um, she ended up writing me a note back and it sort of progressed from there. As in for going into the cells, I was on, I can't remember if it was house block four or house block five. And um, basically I was on the servery. So when you're on a, a wing, the servery inmates get let out about 15 minutes before the rest of the wing. It's so that you can get the food ready and everything else. So she would always open me first. So then we, we got our little bit of quality time. 
Alessandra asked, did you ever play cricket when you were young, like your dad? My dad? He's going on about Graham Gooch, isn't he? Oh. Yeah, no, no relation to Graham Gooch. I've hit a few people oh. with cricket bat, but I ain't never played. Curluck has asked, what do you do for work now? And I can't wait to read your book. Yeah, the book is getting there. Um, but I'm in the, the midst of uh, building an extension which is driving me absolutely mad. But as soon as my office is up and running, um, it will be a lot easier because at the minute I'm trying to write a book on a laptop with screaming kids running around the house. Um, but I'm nearly there. Uh, the book will be out next year. Um, it will be finished. Um, what was the other part of it? That was what you're doing now, what your job oh, is. Uh, predominantly, I'm an HGV driver, but because of the COVID situation, I haven't really been doing a lot, to be honest with you. There's not really a lot going on. Connor Black has said, do you agree that some people just can't and won't make it? I have destroyed so much. I'm 33, I know, but still old enough to have done so much damage. I'm discharged from mental health, blah, blah, blah. Um, I want to, can't get a mentor, can't do the learning while on meds and all sorts of BS diagnosis. So what the fuck do people like me do? Bit of a heavy one. I mean, my answer to that is life is what you make it. Now... You can fall into the category of if you've got mental health issues, if you suffer from depression, you've got bipolar. You can have two views. You can sit in a corner and cry about how life's dealt you bad cards and you've got no hope. Or you can get off your ass and do something about it. Now, I can't stress this enough. No matter how old you are, you're never too old to make your life better. And the reason I say this is because... If you're not happy with how your life is, you can only improve it. The only reason it won't improve is because of your actions. So if you're not happy with a certain aspect of your life, then you need to target what's wrong. No different from being an MMA fighter. You can be the best fighter in the world. But if you don't know any jujitsu and you get taken to the ground, you're going to get submitted. So instead of coming out of the cage and curling up in the ball and going, he choked me out and I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. You go to fucking jujitsu classes and you, you learn. And, and life is no different. If you're, if you're living in a shithole, go and get a job. Cut out all the bollocks that you haven't got to spend money. Even if it means you've got to live six months like an absolute dosser. You do it, accumulate your money, then you get what you want and then your life's improving. Your life is a miracle. Take responsibility for it and make the most of it. All right, man, that was absolutely brilliant. Again, is there anything you like saying conclusion to the people watching this? Nah, brilliant. Um, just a, a great inspiration would be Sean. Oh, thanks. Um, I, I said this, I was talking to us the other day, and I mean, just like that man said um, about coming out and not seeing the light and not looking at how you can progress... When you've got a man sat here that was in a maximum security prison in Nevada and we're now sitting here having a chat making a difference in the world. <laughs> and it just goes to show that no matter what your previous life has been, you can always make changes in your life and you can move forward. And my act goes off to Sean for giving me the opportunity and the platform to get the word out. Um, and I'm sure I'll be in touch with Sean for a lot of years to come. And there's a lot of us across the country on the same mission and we need to unite to get these government changes so that we can make society safer for our kids. All right, thanks for watching. Let us know in the comments what you thought about this video. Oh, and I'll send a link to one of my fights. I'll send you a couple. Brilliant. Um, there's a brilliant one in there. Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you thought about starting up a YouTube channel, putting your fights on them? 
Well, this is the idea. I'm building the extension. I'm building a massive outdoor decking area. Yeah. And the idea is, is that we're gonna we're gonna start on our, our own podcast channel. Okay, brilliant. Um, yeah. So that that's where we're heading, but it's a bit further down the line yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the with the way things are with the COVID, it, you, you insane to even consider doing anything at the minute because mm. it's just not going to go nowhere. But I'm sure it won't last for too much longer. It's hard to organise. Please put your questions below for Tony. Huge thank you for all the new subscribers. Subscription log is in the bottom right hand corner. Huge thank you to people who've clicked down in the description box, checked out Tony's stuff, checked out our socials, donation links on all over playlists, True Crime Podcast, Epstein, Royal Family, hours and hours of endless content down there for your lockdown enjoyment. All right, cheers, brother, give us a hug. Ah, good to see you again, my friend.